Well, good morning. It's so nice for us to be together and to sing praises to the Lord together. As we mentioned last week, this is the last psalm of the summer, Psalm 36. Next week, uh, Pastor Jacob will be back preaching and uh, begin our sermon series through the book of Matthew. And as we've gone throughout the psalms, we've seen these beautiful snapshots of God's greatness, his faithfulness, his care for us. And so we end this summer with Psalm 36. And this psalm, as I studied it this week, highlighted to me one of the reasons why the Bible is so extraordinary. What I mean is this, is that we read the Bible, but as we do so, we often realize the Bible is reading us back. It gives us an accurate description of what we see around us, but also what we find within us. And that's exactly what Psalm 36 opens with. But it's a description of the wicked that is a blow to our human pride. Have you ever felt that, maybe that wound from being um, called out before? Has your pride been wounded? Maybe somebody lets you know that you've done something wrong, you haven't done it the right way, and you feel your stomach, stomach maybe churn a bit. You feel the hotness on the back of your neck, even if you know the person is right. But the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend in Proverbs 27. I think Psalm 36 may make us feel like that this morning, at least at first, but it doesn't stop there. This psalm begins with the description of the wicked, but then it points us upward to God. And this is also why the Bible is so extraordinary. It not only wounds us sometimes, but it heals. It's not only a diagnosis of a problem, but it prescribes and provides the cure. Like a surgeon with his knife who must first cut into the body in order to heal it, so also God with the Bible wounds us with the intent to heal. How do we see that this morning in the psalm? Here's our outline. Verses one through four, the bad news. Verses five and six, the good news. Verses seven through nine, the best news. We're gonna walk through those three sections together. But first, I'm gonna pray, and then we'll read the psalm in its entirety. Please join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we've been able to sing about Christ and about the goodness that we have in him. Lord, that he is our goodness. What he has done in his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, and even his ascension into heaven, that he is now sitting enthroned. I pray that as we come to this psalm, really anytime we come to your word, Lord, would you help us to adjust our thinking to your word? Would you help us to agree with what you say and not only to agree mentally, but to really know it and love it. We thank you for Christ. We pray that this morning, as we read your word, you'd help it to be planted in our hearts to take root and bear fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm gonna read the psalm in its entirety. Please follow along. Verse one. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. 
How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. That is a psalm. Again, we're going to look at the bad news first, verses 1 through 4. Beginning in verse 1, David opens the psalm with a description of the wicked. Right away, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And notice that heart connection there. Transgression, or you could call it rebellion, crime, sin, it speaks to the heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For the wicked, sin is not skin deep. It's not simply a matter of outward actions that is somehow unattached to who we are on the inside. That's, com- that's a common idea today, isn't it? Where we, maybe we think, oh, I know this person made a mistake, but that's not who he is on the inside. If he would just follow his heart, maybe get away from a certain group of friends, he'd do much better. But we actually have the opposite picture in the Bible, that the presence of outward sin is a reflection of an inward heart problem. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God. This is the wicked man that David begins describing. And that wicked man sounds terrible, doesn't he? It's hard to believe that a wicked man like that exists somewhere, that people are like him. But the bad news we have to deal with in this psalm is not just that wicked people exist out there. The bad news we have to take is this. The wicked person, so twisted in heart that David is describing, is actually a good description of all of us. And that's not just my idea. The Bible itself later says this. If you have your Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans, in the, in the New Testament, chapter 3. This first verse, Psalm 36, 1, is quoted by the Apostle Paul when he is describing all of humanity. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul describes both Jew and Greek, meaning all of humanity, with a long list of citations from the Old Testament, almost all of them from the Psalms. And I want us to see what Paul is doing here, beginning in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's a quote from Psalm 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's a quote from Psalm 5.9 in Psalm 140. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That's Psalm 10.7. And then if you look at verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we're back to our passage. So as Paul is writing the book of Romans and he's meditating on the Psalms, And in the Psalms, we see both the righteous and the wicked described. Paul is aligning all of humanity on the side of the wicked. And that's not just Paul's idea. That's the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write these words, meaning it's true. 
And this actually is a major part of Paul's argument in Romans 3, that all people have a great need of uh, salvation because of our sin. It's so easy for us to read the Psalms or any part of the Bible. Take the David and Goliath story. And we, we read it and we think, I would never be like the scared Israelites. I would never be like somebody who would be afraid. I'm probably more like David. But actually a more true description is what we see Paul doing with Psalm 36.1. Aligning all of us on the side of the wicked. And that is a blow to our pride. This is the bad news that Psalm 36 is giving us. And as we read this psalm, I want us to understand, to have this in mind, the description of the wicked that we read is later applied to us. We need to understand that this sad picture of the wicked back in Psalm 36 is actually a picture of us without Christ. So what else does David have to say in Psalm 36? He still has three more verses describing the wicked man. So let's look at them. In verse two, the wicked flatters himself. When he looks in the mirror, he doesn't actually see what's there. But it's interesting, he flatters himself so that his iniquity cannot be found out. Meaning he believes he can hide his sin and put on a front. And not only just not found out, but found out and hated. Meaning it seems that there is an innate sense that the wicked person knows that what he's doing is wrong and worthy of being hated. This is an intentional flattery. Verse three, trouble and deceit, a ceasing of wisdom. But instead, verse four, a plotting, a setting himself in a way that is not good, indeed in a way that is evil. The opposite of what we read in 1 Peter 3 when Jeff was up here. The picture is terrible, but the picture is accurate. This is the diagnosis. And so I have to ask, do we feel the weight of this? When we read this in the Bible, do we feel the weight of this passage being applied to us? And you might ask yourself, why do we focus on this? Why should we focus on sin? Why not just talk about grace and forgiveness the whole time? Why do we dig so deep and talk about sin? And here's my first answer. Because the Bible does. The Bible is not silent on sin. We see it here in, in Psalm 36 and Romans 3, but not just in those two places, all throughout the Bible. This is the main dilemma. How can God and man be together? It's not just the main problem of the Bible, it's the main problem in our lives, our sin problem. Sin is not taken lightly in the Bible. We were created in God's image, made to know and love him, but we have all together turned aside. And because of sin, that image has been distorted. And our ability to image God, to be like him, is severely hampered. It is not taken lightly in the Bible. Listen to God in Jeremiah 6. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. The spiritual leaders of Jeremiah's day did not help the people of Israel at all by pretending the problem was not great. In fact, by taking it lightly, by pretending the situation was not that bad, they did not address the issue at all. 
Again, God says this in Jeremiah 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not coming from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no disaster shall come upon you. And what is so wrong with that? What's wrong is disaster was coming and disaster did come for that people. They did not repent. There is, as verse 12 in our psalm says, a place where evildoers lie fallen. Throughout the psalms in the Old Testament, commonly called Sheol or the place of the dead, elsewhere called hell, and you don't want to go there. A place where people are thrust down, unable to rise. It would be wrong to tell a patient with a serious illness they were fine and then proceed to mistreat them. In the same way, when we come to Psalm 36, when I preach it, I cannot just paper over the uncomfortable parts. And perhaps you felt that in the minor prophets. But the minor prophets deal with judgment. What are you supposed to do except preach that? The way to healing is not by ignoring the bad news, but to look at it head on. Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4, is the bad news we will see today. The depths of our sin. That the category of people David is writing about, called the wicked, is actually an apt description of us all. And so again, do we feel the seriousness and the weight of that? Do you know it to be true that by nature, as we see in verse 1, our hearts are inclined towards sin? And also by choice, verses 2 through 4, we have a sin problem. So that's reason number one we talk about sin, because the Bible does. And here is my second answer, why we talk about sin. And let this be refreshing. An accurate picture of our sin drives us to the Savior, because there is a Savior. And it also shows us how great his work is truly to save us. You won't see your great need of salvation from sin if you don't think it's that big of a deal. Our sin is great, but God's grace is even greater. And we see this as we've sang about in the cross, that the salvation God provides is not skin deep or light, but God deals with all of it at a cost. And this leads us to consider the next section, the good news. We've looked at the bad news. We need something good. Verse five, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Do you notice that abrupt shift from the wicked four verses? Now we're going to look at God. And that's really the only thing we can do after we read those first four verses. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. There's no place greater than the heavens. And God's steadfast love goes even there. God's righteousness is at the mountains, towering over the land. His judgments are like the great deep, way down in the depths of the sea, places we still have not seen. God's goodness fills all, and what a contrast to the way of the wicked. We also see that God's steadfast love in verse 5 is not abstract. Man and beast you save. How does that work? The first four verses, that picture we've seen, how do we get from verses 1 through 4 to God's saving in verse 6? How can God both be righteous, his righteousness as the mountains, and also save wicked people? If his judgments are true and pierce even the deep, how does this work? 
How does this abrupt transition make sense? I want you to notice the phrase in verse 5, steadfast love. This is the key. I think it's the key to understanding this seemingly unsolvable problem, the hinge between verses 1 through 4 and what follows. The steadfast love of the Lord is not just another way to say love that sounds nice by putting steadfast in front of it. The connotation of this word, steadfast love, in Hebrew, hesed, is tied to God's covenant loyalty. It's a loyal love, a promise-keeping love. Steadfast love means loyal love, the kind of love that God keeps and will never revoke because he's made covenant promises to his people. So for a covenant, think of marriage. You have two people pledging themselves to each other. The husband standing before his wife, promising to love her, whether she deserves it or not. And the wife likewise doing that as long as they both shall live. And sadly, we can see marriage is not often thought of as a covenant, but not so with God. His steadfast, covenant-keeping, loyal love extends to the heavens. He will not break his promises. He will fulfill his end of the deal. All throughout the books of Genesis and Exodus, this word, steadfast love, hesed, is used when attached to God's promises to love and care for his people. If you want, you could write down Exodus 15, 13. The people of Israel are praising God for delivering them from Egypt. And they say this, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. There we see steadfast love and redemption linked together. You could also write down Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. As Moses is on the mountain, the Lord gives him this revelation. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And there's that word steadfast love again and transgression, both of which we see in our passage today. But we don't get the idea from Psalm 36 or elsewhere in the Bible that God just pushes sin under the rug. Well, because he's made promises and he wants to do his people good, he's just going to let sin fly. God's righteousness is like the mountains. His judgments are true and pierce even the depths. He will by no means clear the guilty. It says if you keep reading Exodus 34. And so we're right back at that pivotal point, the dilemma of human sinfulness and God's goodness. And right at the center, the hinge upon which this problem turns or is solved is the steadfast love of the Lord. How does God show steadfast love to sinners? How do we get from verses 1 through 4, the wicked, to verses nine th- or 7 through 9, where the children of man are delighting in God? I can't think of a better way to put it than to quote what, we, what we've already sang this morning. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Behold the man upon a cross. This is the answer. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Notice it's my sin. It's not the wicked person out there. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. 
His dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it is finished. This problem is only solved by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. This is how the wicked and the creator are reconciled. And that song is simply a poetic way to convey the truth of Romans 3. When it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we read all those citations, we have all sinned and fallen short, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how does God save? He does so righteously through his son. Jesus lived the perfect life, the exact opposite of what we read in Psalm 36, those first four verses. Wickedness was not embedded deep in his heart, guiding him and leading him. He did not have a trace or stain of sin on him. The words he spoke were not trouble and deceit, but life. He set himself in a way perfectly to obey his father, even to the point of death, unlike the wicked who plots on his bed and flatters himself. And yet, what the wicked deserves in verse 12, to be thrust down, is what Jesus endured for us on the cross. But Jesus did rise. The Father raised him from the dead, vindicating him. Jesus put forward as the propitiation for our sins, showing God's righteousness. This is how God's steadfast love, his loyal love, leads to his salvation. We've looked at a lot of places. Psalm 36, we went back even further to Exodus, um, also back to Romans. So what's the point? When you read Psalm 36, in the sinfulness of the wicked, in the trouble that he commits, and you think of how terrible that is, and you realize that is actually a good description of me without Christ, I want you to read verse 5, your steadfast love, O Lord. I want you to read that and understand that that is the connector between verses 1 through 4 and the rest. This is the hinge that turns us from the wicked to God's saving work. God's steadfast love based on his promises is what brings about salvation. And how does God show this love? Through the work of his son. The steadfast love which led Israel out of slavery is the same love that can lead you and me from the bonds of sin and wickedness. That is our only hope. And yet it is a sure hope. Faith is not a leap into the dark, but a leap into the arms of Jesus. God's steadfast love is not abstract. God doesn't call us to leap into a mush of steadfast love that we can't understand. God shows and proves his love in Jesus. It is personal. God's steadfast love is tied to his saving work. Indeed, it leads to his saving work. And as Christians, we can look back and we can put a name, an event to God's steadfast love. Christ on the cross. Man and beast, God saves according to his steadfast love. And that is the good news of verses 5 and 6. God's steadfast love leads to salvation. But friends, it gets even better. We've seen the bad news, the good news. Verses 7 through 9 now, the best news. 
This next section tells us about the life of the righteous, the redeemed, the children of mankind. Look at the contrast. In verse 1, no fear of God in the wicked's eyes. Verse 7, the children of man see God's steadfast love as precious. Verse 2, the wicked is self-indulgent. They flatter themselves. In verse 8, people now feast and drink on what God provides. Verse 3, the, the wicked is a worker of iniquity. In verse 7, now a refugee in the shadow of God's wings. This is the privilege and the joy of all of those who take refuge in the Lord. Instead of a desire for self-satisfaction, there is a true delight in God. There is a definite distinction, a difference between the wicked and those who delight in the Lord. We see this change of relationship from no fear or respect of God to finding his love precious, from working iniquity, being against God's commands, to taking refuge, and also a change of nature, from transgression being deeply embedded in the heart, to now a love for God, a new principle of love, formerly plotting schemes on his bed in private, but now openly basking in God's presence. That natural enmity between God and man because of sin is removed. God and man together again is the picture we see in these verses. And this is why I say this is the best news. We're not just saved from something. It's not just a get out of hell free card. Jesus isn't just a ticket. We're actually saved to someone, God himself. The Bible's message, our hope as Christians, is not just that we get out of hell, but we get to truly know God is our father, what, were we, what we were created for. This idea of basking, of just participating in the life that God has for us, shines through. Taking refuge, feasting, drinking in rivers of delight. In God's light, we see light. We have it. He gives it to us. What else could we desire in life or ask for? Have you drank from these rivers of delight? Have you tasted its goodness? Is spiritual light inside of you? If it is, then you know that God's steadfast love is precious. Take refuge in his shadow and not anywhere else. Feast on the abundance of God's house and not your own. Drink from heavenly rivers of delight and not earthly ones. Find true light and understanding from God's light, not the light of the newest philosophy or theory. The fountain of life is only with God and nowhere else. If you have not tasted of this goodness, we've already talked about, we've sang about where to find it. Jesus himself says, if you thirst, come to me and drink. And he's not talking just about physical desire. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. That's John 7, 37. Go to Christ. What a song. Beginning with the bad news. And the bad news in the Bible is worse than you think. The wicked, trudging to the depths of sin, this terrible picture that should strike down any pride that we have. But then we have the good news. The steadfast love of the Lord. Our God's faithful, loyal love is all-encompassing, never compromised, even though we don't deserve it. Because we all have broken God's commands. We have not held up our end of the deal. 
and yet God saves. But neither is his justice and righteousness violated. He saves faithfully, righteously, by the work of his only son, the Lord Jesus. And then it gets better. As David continues the psalm, we see him tell us of the life of the redeemed, the joy we can have in God, a restored relationship, a new desire to love and delight in God. And this is, friends, the best news for us. This is what we need. We still have verses 10 through 12. It's a prayer at the end of the psalm that David gives. And instead of me preaching through it, we're going to let this serve as our closing prayer, as our model. So I'm going to read these three verses, and then we're going to pray together. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Please join me as we pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, and ask that you would please continue your steadfast love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright of heart. Lord, help us to grow in grace, in knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, in sanctification, that fancy word that describes our growing in Christ-likeness. God, help us. By your steadfast love, please continue to empower us. We pray for this upcoming Matthew sermon series that it would do just that. That as we spend weeks, maybe even a year or more, looking at Jesus and his life, I pray, Lord, that that would warm our hearts, that we would feast on rivers of delight. Lord, I pray, please, do not let the foot of arrogance come upon us, nor the hand of the wicked drive us away. Please preserve us. Lord, as your people, please preserve us and keep us. Do not let the hand of the wicked drive us away. Let us have our hope in you. Lord, I pray as well that we would not become arrogant or prideful in heart. Your word shatters any pride we may have. Keep us from arrogance. Help us to love those around us who aren't like us. Lord, your word says the evildoers will lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is a miserable picture, Father, a valley of the slain. These are people who do not delight in you or drink from your rivers. Please keep us from this end, but please keep many people from this end. Call and save. Lord, please quicken our hearts to be about the work of gospel ministry. Lord, help us. We have an opportunity being planted here in Monticello and Big Lake and Buffalo. Please help us, Lord. There are people all around us who do not know you, who reject Jesus, who think he's foolish. And yet, God, that is only where satisfaction comes and forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to share the gospel, to not care what people think. Lord, it does not sound cool or smart to follow Jesus, but it doesn't matter. Help us, Lord, to be about the work of preaching the gospel to our family and friends and community. As we come to the table, we're going to sing a song. Would you please warm our hearts to think about the work of Jesus once again? I ask it in his name. Amen.